0: Thanks for tuning in. Bruce Beresford Redmond was born in 1971 and grew up with his parents in Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey, and later attended college in Florida, then headed west to California. One night in 1997, Bruce wandered into a restaurant and nightclub called Zabumba in West Los Angeles. He told CBC News that this beautiful woman served him great food, that it was a fun place to be, so he kept going back. That woman turned out to be Monica Burgos. Together with her sister Carla, they owned the popular spot known for his dance nights. Monica was Brazilian, energetic, and outgoing. She loved people going out with her friends to the club and dancing after work. Bruce and Monica married in 1999 and had two children, a girl and a boy. In the beginning, Monica was the one who made the money. Then, Bruce got a job as a producer on the television series Survivor. His career took off. He worked on seasons 2, 4, and 6 and was nominated for three Emmy Awards. But with success came challenges for the couple. Both worked very hard. Bruce during the day and Monica at night. After 11 years of marriage, they were two ships passing one another. Both had affairs. Bruce's with his casting director became serious, but being unfaithful eventually took an emotional toll on him and he confided in his mother. She encouraged him to think of the family and end the affair. On March 4, 2010, Bruce decided to tell Monica the truth, but not face-to-face. He sent her an email and told her his casting director were lovers. The email was frank and brutally honest. Monica was livid. She pulled out all the money they had in their joint bank account and put it into her own account. She told the school... Bruce was not allowed to pick up the children. She wanted a divorce. Bruce quickly tried to smooth things over. He promised to end the affair and change his ways. Monica's birthday was coming up, and every year they took a family vacation, and Bruce suggested they go away together. Monica spoke to her two older sisters, Jean and Carla. They discouraged her from going. And in the end she agreed to go in late march monica bruce their five-year-old daughter and three-year-old son flew off to cancun mexico they landed at the moon palace gulf and spa resort an upscale all-inclusive resort with white sandy beaches stretching out to the turquoise waters in the gulf of mexico guests upon arrival passed through its gated entrance And traveled to the reception area where they were given a security wristband. It was spring break at the hotel, and it was full of vacationers and college kids ready to have a good time. The couple walked up a flight of stairs to the second floor and into room 7816 with two double beds so that the family could all sleep together. It was reported in the Hollywood Reporter. That they spent the first three days being tourists visiting local attractions at Ishkarat and Shalha. One evening Monica talked to her sister Ferreira and told her that she'd found evidence that Bruce was still communicating with his mistress. The next day the couple were tired and decided to take a break from sightseeing. Bruce planned to spend the day at the hotel with the kids and Monica was going to go shopping to a spa. They awoke at 5 a.m. on April 5th. Bruce played games with his son, and the two were having a lot of fun squealing and laughing. A British family in the room next door was upset by the noise and complained to a hotel employee, who passed it on to the concierge, claiming that they thought they heard a woman scream and were concerned. The concierge called Bruce in Monica's room, and Bruce said that he and Monica had a disagreement and would keep the noise level down. Around 8.30am, Monica dressed in a blue sundress and sandals with gold hoop earrings, and told her family she'd be back soon. She left for her day of alone time, leaving her cell phone behind. It was cracked and broken, but that didn't matter. She enjoyed going off the grid once in a while. That afternoon, Bruce took the children to the pool for a swim. Then, back in the hotel room, they watched movies and took a nap. After dinner, Bruce gave them baths and tucked them into bed. Monica wasn't back yet, but Bruce wasn't worried. She often stayed out late, and he thought perhaps she'd met some people and was enjoying a drink. By 10.30, she wasn't back. Bruce repeatedly opened the door and looked outside, expecting to see her walking up to the door. Monica hadn't returned by morning, and Bruce called the hotel desk and reported her missing. Then he called Monica's sister, Jean. She told CBC News that when she got the phone call, she thought, Monica doesn't get lost. She knows what she's doing. So Jean immediately flew to Cancun. Investigators arrived at the hotel and questioned Bruce as to why she hadn't taken her phone. Then he explained it was broken. Then they discovered she hadn't taken her passport. But then most people don't carry their passport when they're on a short trip into town, but rather lock it up in the room safe. Investigators noticed scratches and on Bruce's neck and asked about them. He told them that he'd got them during their trip to Ishkarat. The hotel kept a log of people coming and going from the resort, but they had no record of Monica leaving. However, later, a taxi driver would say that he saw Monica leave the hotel and take a cab. Monica had been missing for three days when Mexican police officers cornered Bruce in his hotel room and told him they believed he had killed Monica and suggested that if he gave them money, it might make his problem go away. Bruce denied killing Monica and didn't give them a dime. Then the woman investigator led him outside and gave him the news he had been fearing. Monica had been found dead. It was her 42nd birthday. Her naked and beaten body was found by an employee only 150 feet from their hotel room in a cistern used for sewage. Her body was badly decomposed, but it was determined that she had suffered a substantial head wound to her right temple and she had been suffocated. Mexican authorities confiscated Bruce's passport and told him not to leave. Monica's sister Jean took the children and flew back to Los Angeles. She and her sisters filed a missing persons report with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department and gave them copies of emails and letters Bruce had written to his mistress. It turned out that Monica had been spying on Bruce. Bruce stayed in Cancun for another week, then consulted a lawyer and was advised he could return to the United States. So with no passport, he took a bus from Cancun and headed north, walked across the border into Texas using his driver's license, then took a train back to Los Angeles. Authorities in Mexico were furious. They claimed he was not free to leave and by doing so, had broken the law and was a fugitive. They filed a request for his extradition back to Mexico. But Bruce didn't act like a fugitive. He didn't run or hide, but returned home to be with his children. Seven months after Monica's murder, Bruce was arrested. He was taken to a U.S. federal detention center while Mexican authorities presented their evidence to a U.S. court. They claimed witnesses had seen Bruce and Monica fighting at the hotel, and that blood had been found in their hotel room. And that hotel records indicated someone had used the room key to leave and re-enter the room that night 15 times. And that footprints found near the cistern where Monica's body was found appeared to match Bruce's. Bruce's daughter testified at the extradition hearing that the cuts and scratches on her father's neck had come from their trip to the park and that she and her mother had put band-aids on them. The burden of proof for extradition is quite low. All that was needed is for Mexican authorities to show probable cause. And they did that. In February 2012, after 16 months in a U.S. prison, a judge ruled in favor of extradition. In the middle of the night, U.S. Marshals took Bruce, in shackles and a bulletproof vest, to the airport, where he was whisked off to the Menito Juarez prison in Cancun, Mexico. He hired a lawyer, Jamie Cancino who contacted the hotel for a copy of the security footage from that night, but discovered that the cameras hadn't been working. He then hired a forensic scientist and criminologist to investigate Bruce. The deal was that, good or bad, he would not lie, but tell the truth based on where the evidence led him. Bruce jumped at the chance for him to look at his case. The Benito Juarez prison was originally built to house 700 inmates, but now housed 1,800. Bruce used a camera in prison to tell his story for CBC News. His cell had been designed for three inmates, but often housed 10 or more, and sometimes up to 17. He slept on the floor with scorpions and spiders, and while he slept, Cockroaches roamed his body. Breakfast consisted of a brown liquid with beans, or so he thought, not entirely sure. When he arrived, he did not receive a bowl for meals. When it was dished out, he held out his hands and watched it run through his fingers. In the beginning, Bruce was a celebrity. Initially, they thought he had been a contestant on the show and nicknamed him Survivor Man. But in prison, with murderers and rapists who battled crowded conditions, riddled with disease and little food, he soon became old news. Barbed wire surrounded the prison. The cells are open to the elements, including the rain, the heat and humidity relentless. The water ran for only a few hours a day, and the smell from the open sewer was blinding. Over time, he managed to secure a bunk to sleep on, and on a shelf above his bed, he kept a picture of his son and daughter. He also managed to have food from the outside, brought in to him from a family of an inmate he had befriended. To pay for his food, his parents provided him the money, dipping into their retirement fund. Within a week of stepping back on Mexican soil, Bruce's trial began. Prosecutors contended that sometime that morning, Bruce hit Monica on the head with a blunt object, knocked her unconscious, then he strangled her to death and hid her body out of sight in their room. That night, when the children were asleep, he dragged or carried her body out the door, down two flights of stairs, and 150 feet to the cistern. There he managed to lift the 250-pound cement lid by himself and dump her body inside. Then he placed the lid partially back on and returned to their hotel room without anyone seeing a thing. He cleaned up the blood from her murder and the next morning reported her missing but the prosecution's allegations didn't match the evidence. The coroner testifying for the prosecution determined that she hadn't been killed in the morning, but rather in the evening, sometime after 11 p.m., 18 hours later than the prosecution alleged. The coroner also determined that she hadn't been killed in the hotel room because there were no lividity marks on her body Marks that are caused when the body is placed on a hard surface, such as the floor. The coroner determined she had been killed at the cistern where her body had been found. At trial, it was revealed that a rape kit had not been performed on Monica's body, nor had they taken scrapings from under her fingernails. The prosecution's evidence continued to dwindle. It was also revealed that investigators didn't immediately seal off the family's hotel room the day Monica was reported missing. Cleaning staff entered the room, contaminating any potential evidence. And the blood evidence the prosecution claimed was found in their hotel room? It turned out it didn't belong to either Monica or Bruce. Ben, an expert witness for the prosecution, testified that the sand found in Bruce's shoes was not a match to the sand around the cistern, nor did the footprints match Bruce's shoe size. The prosecution then admitted that a large amount of evidence had been lost. Somehow, it had just disappeared, and what did remain had been damaged by water and mold. And remember the eyewitnesses who reported seeing and hearing Bruce and Monica arguing at the hotel? They recanted their story, saying that Bruce wasn't the man they'd seen. And the British family next door to the hotel room that claimed they heard screaming? The police never got a statement from them. Meanwhile, the criminologist that Bruce's lawyer hired came back with his report he found no evidence that Bruce was responsible for Monica's death and he felt that her murder was committed by two people, not one. Then, in another twist, a criminologist testified for the prosecution that he, too, found no evidence connecting Bruce to Monica's murder. The prosecution fired him and found another expert whose testimony supported their version of the murder. Now, the judge had conflicting experts, so he brought in his own. After months, he determined that there were no elements linking Bruce to Monica's murder. Even with all the prosecution's witness testimony that turned out to hinder their case and help Bruce's defense, the trial continued. The process in Mexico is different than in the U.S. and Canada. Evidence is not presented all at once, but rather in bits and pieces over a period of months. The Mexican Constitution states one year is allowed for trial, but Bruce's took much longer. Many of his contacts in the TV industry faded away. However, Bruce's lawyer Jamie became so convinced of his innocence that he continued working on his case for free. Bruce appeared in court over 45 times, Sometimes a witness did not show or a judge couldn't make it, and it was rescheduled for weeks or months later. Finally, in March 2015, three years after his trial began, it concluded. Bruce was found guilty and sentenced to 12 years. He was 43 years old. Bruce appealed his conviction and lost. Four years later, in June 2019, Bruce was unexpectedly released from prison after serving 80% of his sentence. Between the U.S. and Mexico, he had been in prison almost nine years. Monica's sisters held strong in their belief that Bruce had murdered her. He didn't fault them for it. He understood that they needed someone to blame. The years in prison gave him time to reflect, and every day, he missed her. Bruce returned to Los Angeles to be with his children. At Moon Palace, tourists unknowingly walked by the cistern where Monica lost her life, the grisly truth hidden deep among the manicured lawns and lush green gardens. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Gary Handlin. For nearly 40 years, Gary got away with not one, but two murders. Then he got a job offer from a crime boss that he couldn't turn down. But it came with a catch. He had to confess to a murder. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free. At murder20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder and 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Verbal Planet for use of their music, sound effects, and fasting studios and quick sounds and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.